Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. Today, I have a very special guest in studio with me. Tim Sanders is a technology pioneer. He is a best-selling author and a great conference speaker. He's spoken at our events. And Tim is a friend of mine and a friend of Buffini and Company. As a former chief solutions officer for Yahoo, he's consulted with industry leaders, governments, trade associations. The man is the bomb. He knows media, he knows leadership, and he is the king of talent. I first got exposed to Tim when I read a huge runaway bestseller of his called Love is the Killer App. The subtitle of How to Win Business and Influence Friends. I love that to this day. He's a widely quoted business author. Tim has very simple philosophy of business. His life philosophy is business philosophy, very similar. Share your knowledge, which he does, by the way, very generously with me and Buffini and Company. Share your network and your compassion to multiply the value of everyone you interact with. And so, a fabulous guy, a fabulous thinker. Tim, it's a great honor to have you here today. Brian, glad to be with you, man. I'm excited to kind of showcase you a little bit to our audience. You know, people interact with a book, Mm -hmm. and they interact with your content and your philosophy, but sometimes it's not three-dimensional, right? And they get a sense of the man, but they don't really know the man. And here you are, you're... You create a book called Love is the Killer App, which at the time was like, what is this guy talking about? We're going to go down the path on that today. We're going to go back to Clovis, New Mexico. Can you talk a little bit about your story, where it starts? It's a remarkable story. I don't know how many people actually know it, but talk to us about where it all started for you. Well, I was born in Lubbock, Texas, okay, West Texas, and at uh, the age of four-ish, My mother, who always wanted to be a model actress, misplaced me at a hotel for not the first time. Mm. And uh, when the sheriff's department found me, they called my grandmother, Billy King, who lived in Clovis. That's where Mm. she lived. And she got in her car, and she came out, and she took me, and she made me her own. And I started calling her mom from that day forward. Mm. And I was uh, raised in Clovis. She was a uh, premillennial Southern Baptist independent the Jehovah's Witness would come to our house and say, you're strict. You know what I mean? She was she was a very ardent Christian. We would go to church six times a week, do wow. the math, okay? Wow. Um, so I was way, raised... Which day did you not go? Oh, well, Sunday. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, Saturday was traditionally our day off, but wow. we would do, if it wasn't visitation or devotion, or whistle, so it was a really important part of our life. Mm. We had seven books inside the farm. It was a farm. So the seven books are like, it's the litany of positive thinkers. It's Dale Carnegie, it's Maxwell Maltz, yeah. it's Zig Ziglar, it's Dave Allo, oh, Cyber Cybernetics. That's a great one. It was written the year I was born. Yeah, so it was those books, Norman Vincent Peale, mm. uh, Napoleon Hill, which she considered the secular read in the pile. <laughs> Chariots of the Gods, which for those of you listening, oh, I remember that yeah. one. So I was raised on that. And it was pretty important to me, see, because I don't know what was wrong with me. I had thunderstorms in my head. At first they thought it might be a form of autism. Whatever it was, I was I couldn't focus. Mm. Couldn't focus. So in the second grade, they kicked me out of public school. Mm. And I was too young for reform school, which is I think where they would have sent me. This is the 60s, Brian. Mm-hmm. So they were very they didn't have all the elegance they have now about, you right. know, how they treat you. You were a problem child. I was a problem child, so they put me in special education, which was the reformed library downtown. There were 20 of us. And we were the kids that didn't fit. We were the special ed students. And we, we literally rode in a little short bus. And it was self-paced school. There's no teacher. There was a guy at the front of the class. This is a long time ago. Wow. There's a guy at the front of the class that basically makes sure we don't hurt each other. Wow. And that was the environment we live in. I, I do share this every once in a while. There was one particular guy who came in, and on the very first day, he sets down a car battery and a pair of jumper cables. Hmm. And I won't say the word he said, but any if any of you <laughs> special education students, if you act up, I'm going to put this clip on this end. And he goes, I'm going to put the other clip right on you. And he took the thing and he shocked and the sparks put up and we were terrified. Wow. Um, that was the kind of educational environment I grew up in. Fortunately, I finished junior high by the end of the fifth grade. Wow. And so they were kind of at a crossroads that they didn't have anything else. So they made the wise decision of saying, well, I guess Tim's better now. 
So they put me back in public school, but because I'd finished so much, they skipped me a year. So now you just have to imagine, my nickname is Short Bus. <laughs> I'm injected into a school where I'm now a year younger than everybody else, and I'm little. I'm mm. extremely little at the time. It was a very challenging environment for me. Mm. I got beat up a lot, lived in constant fear, didn't really have any friends, etc. And then this is where Billy really helped me, because she grew up in the Great Depression years. Mm -hmm. So she knew about what it was going to take to come back. She knew about perseverance. And so based on her father, Tommy's work, she had these principles. She called them the principles of confidence, these Mm -hmm. things that were going to help me get back on my feet. And she taught them to me. And many of them synchronized to what you believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Exercise your gratitude muscle, Mm -hmm. right? Gratitude's not a feeling, it's a muscle. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you'd feel it all the time, she'd say. You -hmm. give to be rich. Once when a bully had beat me up, I had blood on my shirt. She came to school. I thought she was going to beat that bully up on my behalf. You know what she did? She grabbed me and she says, you know what your problem is? You don't love those boys enough. Wow. I'm like, are you kidding? Did you see what that guy did to me? Mm. And she goes, in this family, you don't love people because of who they are. You love people because of who we are. Mm. And it changed me. And so I said, okay. And I asked the bully who went to our church about three weeks later, do you want to come over to our house for Sunday? Because she explained to me, behind every bully is a kid who's suffering more than you. Mm. This is how he expresses it. So he came over and he stole some of my stuff and pushed me around and it didn't get much better. Um, But then he invited me to his house a month later. Mm. And so I went to his house after church and his older brother beat him with a horse bridle right in front of me to make a point. His father, who was a drunk and didn't go to church that day, threw a beer can at him when he was walking through the room and then said duck five seconds later, right? And it just, in my life and in my psyche, something changed in that very moment. And I realized that the purpose of my life is to love those who needed love and I believed it could solve anything. And so if I fast forward the story, that dude, Harley, it's his name, was my assistant campaign manager when I won senior class president several years later. And it was an arc for me from special education to class president, but love was the secret. And so I think that that seed of service and loving people because of who I am really fueled everything I did in my life. It took a few years for it to blossom as a focal point, and I think that that moment was really 1997. Now, I just want to say to you, I'm sitting here, I know you and I Uh know your story. I'm stunned sitting here. And... I hope people who are listening to this are stunned. They might be in their car. They might be driving. They might be on a workout. They're doing whatever else. But, you know, in our world today, that is even more of a foreign concept. As much as we think we're sophisticated today, and that would never happen with special ed kids today, and those circumstances, and here you are, you know, you dropped off in in the wrong spot basically abandoned as a four-year-old all those different things and we've had oprah forever we've had psychology is the number one degree in the united states for the past 20 years but the fact of the matter is billy's statement on love is probably more needed today than Mm -hmm. it was in the 60s -hmm. it's probably more needed today than ever before you know we need to love those guys more and we love them because of who we are not Mm -hmm. because of who they are Or, or in her case she's probably saying who we know Right? She's probably talking from a spiritual context as much as anything else. Yeah. She believed that when we give, we become rich. Mm. There's two kinds of rich, she said. There's bank account rich and there's spiritually rich. Mm. No one can take away spiritually rich. No recession. Mm -mm. And the only way you become spiritually rich is to believe there's enough to go around. Mm. You know me. You know how much I've been onto the scarcity abundance Mm. thing, that we've got to be bigger people. We've Mm -hmm. got to believe there's enough to go around. But she really taught me that, you know, it's not giving, it's not charity, it's love. And when you believe there is enough to go around, that's when you're truly rich. Mm. So let's dive back in the story here. I'm going to have to listen to this podcast myself a few times already. <laughs> okay. In mid-80s, you're, yeah, you're yeah. cranking along. I get out of college. I go on debate. A debate team was a natural fit for me, a national mm-hmm. champion debater, uh, won a scholarship to law school. Over the summer, I heard reggae for the first time. I, I didn't go to law school. I grew dreadlocks. I played reggae music. I started down that path. I ended up getting a, a real job in sales, and I'm coming up. And I'm just not that focused, Brian. I mean, I'm good at doing what I can do, but I'm obviously not, at this point, if I've been doing music for a long time, I'm not signed. I really wasn't talented enough to do it and professionally. 1997, I take a job with Mark Cuban in Dallas, Texas, at his startup, which at the time was called AudioNet. Mm-hmm. It became Broadcast.com, biggest IPO opening day in history. 
I go in there. It's 1997. I'm working for the Cube. There's a sign on the wall. It was his mantra, make love, not war. That was his customer service philosophy. Mm. That was what distinguished Broadcast.com from real networks and Windows Media Player and everybody else that did audio, video, streaming. He went into the market, found out what the customer wanted, and gave it to them. Mm-hmm. And when the customer said, I'm not happy, he said, I'm sorry, and tore up the invoice. And everybody else fought with him. Mm-hmm. And when I worked for the first time in an environment like that, then love wasn't just my grandmother saying. It was the future of business. Mm-hmm. And I got on fire. Mm-hmm. And so I was very purposeful working for Mark during those days in 1997 to help retailers and business owners and all kinds of people grappling with change, just freaked out about everything that was happening, helping them understand why this was a good thing Mm -hmm. and how they could profit from it. And that's really, Brian, where I made that leap from simply embracing people to thinking about mentoring and educating people as a way that I express my love. And from that came Love is the Killer app. Mm. So... Dynamic here. You go from Cuban to Yahoo. How did that all happen? Well, so I go to work for Mark Cuban in '97. I'm a sales guy. I'm first. I'm an inside sales guy. Just working the college markets, the worst market in the world. That's that's why I worked it. Yeah. And then eventually, I'm just a regular account executive. And one day in 1998, my phone rang, and it was Ken Weil, the Victoria's Secret director of marketing. Hmm. And he said, uh, we were thinking about trying to find some videos we could put on. We, our website just launched. We're late. And then so he and I talked. And I'm like, well, what's the biggest event you have every year? He goes, oh, we have this thing at Cipriani's in New York. It's called the, the Fashion Show. I'm like, well, I can only imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, have you made a DVD? No. Ever had it on TV? No. We should webcast that. Mm. So we produced it. It was very difficult. It crashed the internet. Yeah. Bought a Super Bowl spot to promote it. Anyway, <laughs> six weeks or so after that, the discussion began with Yahoo to purchase us. And uh, they purchased us in 1999 for somewhere near $6 billion, mm-hmm. five point something billion dollars. Mark did not dig the Yahoo culture. He felt them not good at executing. He went out there a few times. It just wasn't a fit for him. So he bought the Dallas Mavericks, and mm-hmm. he started HD.net and went his direction. I was super interested in the Yahoo culture. It was like Dr. Seuss out there when I visited <laughs> Silicon Valley. The smart engineering culture meets all of that excitement. I felt like we were like putting up the telegraph wires to change the world and create total transparency. And so I, got, I went all in. Mm-hmm. And so I made the transition, but I'm still a sales guy. Mm-hmm. So I get there, and I'm giving a little speech at one of their sales conferences, and the chief sales officer's like, dude, we need to bottle your passion for the internet. And so that's when we started what's called the Value Lab, which was the first of the Silicon Valley think tanks during that dot-com era, mm-hmm. where I'd partner with Stanford Business School and all these other people for us to kind of make better predictions about where the internet was going to go. The long and the short of it, Brian, is that I really applied my principles of educating people with love in my heart to help them succeed. We applied that to our customers, and it was a great experience. Yeah, I mean, I got there four months before the dot-com crash. Lost everything. I mean, there, there is that backstory. Other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? It was Lincoln. great. It was, yeah, exactly. Other than that, how was the play? It was such a wonderful time because it was the beginning of something big. Yeah. And here we are, you know, 17 years later. I still have friends from those days. So working at Yahoo is great because from that culture came so many startups. Mm. So when you point to something, Airbnb, yeah, Belinda Johnson, COO, I work with her. She sat across from me. You talk about Zillow, you talk about Trulio, Paul Levine, I know all those guys. I Mm -hmm. work with those guys. They Mm -hmm. sat next to me. Facebook, those were my lieutenants. So I look at that whole world of Silicon Valley and we all go back to those early days Mm. in 2000 Mm. when we wanted to change the world more than we wanted to get rich. Mm. And those were exciting days, dude. Mm -hmm. So you are using this formula as a sales guy then as a sales leader then as a sales manager Yahoo says hey we got something special here you get promoted I don't know how many times you 11 go, 11 times in how 11. long it was less than two years okay that's that's pretty good and it was good stuff I'm sure there's a bunch of people want me to circle back and ask that question <laughs> how do you go about doing that we'll get there but along the way you're providing value and the next thing you know you start sharing this message yeah of Basically, what would become Love is the Killer app. Yeah. And the company said, hey, all these people are interested in you. Put your message out there. And you did, and it became this massive runaway best-selling book. Let's talk a little bit about it. If you've never read it and you're listening to this podcast, the minute there's a break, you should probably go ahead and get it. All things being considered, 
It's one of my favorite books. Oh, and thank you. it's beautifully written. And the message is strong. The message is strong. Talk about the premise of love is a killer app and what does it mean to business people? Because it sounds so altruistic that the pragmatic people are going, but where do you make living at it? Yeah, absolutely. So here, here it is. You will find true success in your life if you commit yourself to promote success in other people's lives mm -hmm. and trust them to pay forward. Mm -hmm. There's a lot here in that statement. Mm -hmm. So what I figured out is that love of other people is the breakthrough strategy in our business life. It solves every single problem you could ever have. Now, the problem though, and this gets back to your point, well, what does that mean to love? Does that mean that we give them free product? Mm -hmm. Does that mean that if it's an employee, we look the other way when she makes it? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. So I was doing this little training program. It was just for the young yahoos at the time. We called them yahoos. <laughs> and I was giving a little lecture to the real estate folks. And, other, and I would talk about the idea that in business, we have a social contract, right? We're supposed to take care of the company, keep the lights on, mm -hmm. right? And so we have that role that we have to fulfill. But at the same time, we are born to love and help and promote other people's success. So what I realized is that nice, smart people succeed. Mm -hmm. So what I figured out is that in the world of our career and business, love is when you intelligently share your intangibles, mm -hmm. your knowledge, your network of relationships, your human compassion, you share those with other people to promote their success. That's what love means at work, and you do it intelligently. Mm -hmm. When it sound like J-Max here, mm -hmm. that's John Maxwell. I call oh, yeah. him J-Max. <laughs> you love the right people for the right reason, in the right way, yeah. at the right time. And that's what I mean by being intelligent. Mm -hmm. I figured out the secret to mentorship was to find the hero that's going somewhere just a little bit too fast, mm -hmm. or to find the legend whose world has been turned upside down, mm -hmm. and that is who you minister to. That's who you mentor. That's who you help. Whether I'm working with a young Yahoo who's 22 and early in her career, or whether I'm counseling Jerry Storch at Target before he became president about e-commerce, mentorship goes both ways, mm -hmm. right? So Love is the Killer app was really about that three things, that simple idea that when you meet people, you always give them knowledge first because you want yep. them to succeed. And you know uh, that's yep. how I am as a yep. person. Yep. And there's a lot to that. Yep. It's very hard to bring the gift of insight to every conversation. Sure. But that's the secret to developing trust and respect. And on that foundation, I can now give you my network of relationships right. without any strings. Which in our case, you know, you come walking in the door, you've done your homework, you know about us, you know who we are, you know what we are, you know people that we're in common with, which allows you to have confidence. Mm -hmm. You know, I send you an art copy of a book coming out here in a few months, you read the book, and based on that, you have a sense, you've done your homework, now you're able to provide value based on your frame of reference right. to support, help, and invigorate. Right. Well, yeah, you, you can't help what you don't know. We've been doing that all day today before this podcast. We have been. We've been <laughs> brian-storming. <laughs> brian-storming. No, we have, because I think part of what it means to love someone is to care about their story, to care about their goals, mm -hmm. and to hurt a little bit when it comes to their challenges. Mm -hmm. True sense of empathy. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one of my big things is readers are leaders, mm -hmm. right? You're not going to share much knowledge if yep. you're not a good student. Always. And people that take the time to read entire books from beginning to end are more thorough thinkers mm -hmm. than those that just read USA Yesterday mm -hmm. or, or some blog post as a way they get their information. So long-form readers are better leaders. I've always believed that. But I've kind of changed my curriculum, mm -hmm. right? So, so when I first started out in the reading binge, and, and I didn't, invent this. Mark Cuban inspired me to be a reader. In 97, mm. when I met him in July, he'd read 50 books that year cover to cover. Mm. He was a nutbag when it came to reading. Mm. He was desperate to read. He never slept on planes. Mm -hmm. So I got that from him. He told me the future's in the bookstore and everybody's too lazy. Mm -hmm. Right? He used to quote Bobby Knight, everybody wants to win, but no one wants to do the work to mm. prepare to win. So that started me reading books. So in the beginning... You know, I'd read from curiosity or necessity, right? Mm -hmm. I'd read a book that I needed to read to take the next step, or I'd read a book that looked interesting to me, and then a few years ago, a light bulb went off that half of everything I read should be to benefit another person. I call it prescriptive reading. Mm -hmm. So every other book I read now, and I don't, maybe I read two a month, mm -hmm. but every other book I read is a book that someone in my life should be reading, and mm -hmm. I read it first as their curator. Nice. I mark it up. I figure out the points that make most sense to them, right. 
and then I give it to them. Right. And that's my pot buy, if you well, will. And so. I believe for people <laughs> like you and I, it's easier because we have an outlet. Yeah. And so when I'm reading, I read for myself, but I'm also reading for others. Yeah. The thing about it is, there's easy for people to say, well, Brian, you have a podcast, you have this, you're speaking all over the world, yada, yada. You have an audience. The truth is, everybody has an audience. Everybody's got an audience, and especially if, in the world we live in today with sure. Facebook. You'd be surprised what an audience you have. Right. And so the fact is, if you read, it with, I'm going to share something of value, there's something I'm reading is beneficial for me, but it may be even supremely beneficial to somebody else. So you're talking here, back to Billy's bookshelf. You know, Zig mm-hmm. used to say, help enough people get what they want in life, you'll get everything you want in life. Yep. That's the success in Dale others. Dale Carnegie, my favorite quote, you will yep. accomplish more developing a sincere interest in people than you will ever accomplish trying to get people interested in you. Mm-hmm. He taught that to students in the 1920s at yep. YMCA's in Manhattan, mm-hmm. and that's the bedrock of the Carnegie belief. When my house burned down years ago, we lost over 5,000 books. And I rebuilt a brand new home, and we had massive bookshelves built in my office, in our, in our reading room, in my wife's office, and in our, in our library. And I had no books. I had no books. And I initially went to lament about that, and yeah. then I went, okay, this is an opportunity. Yeah. The very first book I bought was How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yeah. I read it 20 times. Yeah. But it was a treat putting that book back on the shelf. And I go, okay, that's one. <laughs> We're back on, right? Good stuff. Yeah, yeah. So give knowledge first. What's the next one? The next one is to share your network. Mm. Your network is your greatest net worth. Mm-hmm. You may not be able to solve every one of your friend's problems, but one of your network connections can. Mm-hmm. Especially, especially in this world we live in where everything's connected and networks are so easily organized, mm-hmm. right? So you share your network of relationships with other people and you're very smart about it. You match opportunities with providers. Uh-huh. I call it the benefactor and the recipient. Uh-huh. You match personality with personality. You push them to engage and you encourage them to synergize and it is an art form. And if you commit yourself to introduce three people a week that should meet and get out of the way and expect nothing in return, the stature and size of your network will explode mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. people will differentiate you. People will love you, respect you, admire you. And when they want to give you something back, I've got the perfect answer. Mm-hmm. I don't want anything back. I enjoy this too much to get paid for it. Mm-hmm. I want you to pay it forward. Mm-hmm. Your job is to introduce three people that should meet. Okay, mm-hmm. And that's the essence of being a super connector because I believe that the difference between being a networker and being a super connector is like the difference between calamari and squid. <laughs> Five bucks, baby. No, it's really important. So in Love is a Killer, I've talked about this idea that we have to ask different questions. So I don't want to just ask, what do you do if I meet you somewhere? Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, what are you working on that you're excited about? Like, mm-hmm. what's your wow project, right? Mm-hmm. And when you start talking to me about this project, this passion you're working on, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm going to be kind of a mixture between like David Frost and Columbo. Mm-hmm. And I want to have you keep talking because there's, there's an arc to these networking conversations. You're going to tell me first a headline. It's, you're scripted. Here's my headline. Here's my soundbite. Okay. More. Well, here's why I'm doing it. Here's where it started. Ah, the story's not unfolding. Mm-hmm. More. Well, today, this is my obstacle. Mm-hmm. <sighs> And soon the opportunity will emerge in the conversation of somebody that you know, some resource that you know of that will help that person in that obstacle. And it's a game changer. And once you figure out that conversation, I swear to you, one out of four conversations will give you an opportunity to connect with somebody, with somebody, mm-hmm. right? And it's your job to listen deeply enough and empathetically enough and be pushy enough mm-hmm. to find that opportunity and then seize that opportunity. Now, I know you're a pen and paper kind of guy. I am, yeah. You know, I am too, dude. I am a pen and paper guy. So I still do the business card thing. Mm -hmm. So let's say I'm at a church meeting or a networking thing or a convention or whatever, and I meet you, and you talk to me about this passion project, and you explain to me you have this objective, and you know it's very clear there's somebody I can introduce you to. And I tell you, Brian, I know this guy. I'm going to introduce this Mm -hmm. guy to you. I get your card, 
And the first thing I do is I take the top right-hand corner of that card and I bend it over to remind myself Mm -hmm. that I was going to make an introduction. It's important, right? Mm -hmm. And if possible, I step away from you and I write down in the back of your card who you should meet. And that Mm -hmm. became part of Love is the Killer Apta. We have to systematize how we share our network with other people. It's not random. And when I make that introduction, I think very methodically about what can I do since you're going to be the beneficiary, mm-hmm. I'm making this up, how can I sell you to the person I'm introducing to you who's mm-hmm. the provider? Mm-hmm. And these days, it's very easy. So if I can't sit us down around a table and create that camaraderie, if I have to resort to email, then I'm going to really take time writing that note. Mm-hmm. And it's going to have your LinkedIn profile. It's going to have my endorsement of you. It's going to have his... and. I'm going to send that note out and I'm going to count to about 10 and I'm going to get my mobile phone out and I'm going to text the provider on the other end and Mm -hmm. say, you better read this email. I want you to meet Brian. Mm -hmm. And then he's going to tell me, okay, I'll do it. And then tomorrow I'm going to call you. Brian, have you talked to that guy yet? And I'm going to push you two guys together. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's missing when we think a lot about how can we help introduce people and network people, execution. So I've been very focused, you know, for 15 years now about that. And the power of that, if you think of it, because it all sounds so altruistic until, because I've watched you do this. I've done this myself. I'll tell you about what I use your business card system for in my business. But now you become the connector. Mm Mm-hmm. And you become the connector of value. Mm -hmm. And you become the person that, you know, yes, they're paying it forward and yes, they're doing this. But you've made an indelible impression. And you don't do just that once. You might do that two or three or four times or however many times. And you become this person. There is so much research on this. There's so much work. The book came out a few years ago, Give and Take. Oh, yeah. One of my proj. Right. Adam is a good kid. Sure. Good, good guy. Great. You've got to read that book, Give yeah. and Take. Yeah. So he did some nice stuff on the very same dynamic. And again, you can see he's, he's in your coaching line, if you could say. Mm-hmm. But the fact that, you know, great data, great research on, you know, the guy that would turn down this deal, turn down that deal, connect him with this person, connect him with that deal, ultimately gets deals brought in front of him that he can never even imagine. Right. You know, it's over and over and over again, but it's about being a voice of value, being a connector and in our world today being the connector and being the person who brings people together Mm -hmm. it's always been valuable but now it is maybe the most valuable well yes and the reason why is because every person you need to know is at arm's length Mm -hmm. you know it's no longer a dream it's a reality right Mm -hmm. but i think and this is you know something that adam's work focus on and i've kind of realized over the years you need to be humble as a connector about your role Mm mm-hmm Right, so my favorite anecdote about that was Elmer Letterman. Just if you, for those on the Google, that's <laughs> Letterman with one T, um, greatest networker in the history of life insurance. Mm. And you know when he started his business in the twenties, uh, they faced a rough spot. You can imagine in the thirties, mm. uh, he started to create a networking lunch every Friday, and he'd put three people together: a chef, a construction executive, and an angel investor, and they'd launch a restaurant. He could come to the restaurant a year later with a line around the block, and surprisingly, he wouldn't expect a free meal or a cut in line. Mm-hmm. When he'd shake the chef's hand at the front door, he'd ask him, how'd you do it? Because the real networkers understand that their role is so insignificant, and that humility makes them so dang lovable mm-hmm. on the part of the recipient. Because the last thing you ever want to do is be in debt to somebody. Sure. Because if you're in debt to somebody, you will do all you can to get out of that debt. Right. But when a person doesn't even acknowledge they helped you, yeah. when they take such humility, yeah. you can't give them enough of yourself, right. right? They just become a part of your family because that's how family treats you. Like like your brother or your dad's never going to say, well, I introduced you to that guy. Where's right. my finder's fee? Right. But your college buddy would right. because when I was coming up in the business world, that's where I saw everything was wrong. You know, everybody goes to a meeting wanting to learn something. Mm-hmm. Everyone goes to an event wanting to meet someone, and I just wanted to turn all of it on its head. Mm-hmm. I wanted to give. I wanted to share. I wanted to be. And, and it's how you've lived. It's produced a phenomenal success track for you. And now people and corporations line up left, right, and center to bring you in to speak to their people so that they can be better givers themselves. You know, and it's very, very close to my heart. The theme for our success tour this year yeah. has been the giver's guide to greatness. Oh, well, there you go, man. <laughs> there you go. That's it, right? And what happens, too, is that the more you give, the more you begin to love yourself. And this is really important. Mm. You have to have a picture of yourself that you can admire. You have to be able to stand back now and say, I'm really getting it right. Mm. And you will only do that if you live in the good loop of life where you just give and give and give and you expect nothing in return and at some point you feel spiritual momentum 
Mm-hmm. And, and that's just something I strive for, and that's something I think it's just accorded to what I do when I try to help people, is for them to just rethink giving. Mm-hmm. Giving is not something you do to get. It's not something you do because you have an obligation and you want to give back. It's something you do because you can. And maybe because of Billy King, because it's who you are. It's, it's, right? it's you deep lo- into we, your You soul. love because of who you are. You give because of who you are. Here's what I've found. Most people are actually designed to give. Yeah. But they've given. They feel like it hasn't been reciprocated or honored or valued. They haven't had a thank you. Sometimes a giver matches up with a taker, Mm -hmm. and it's very painful, Mm -hmm. and it hurts. You know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. So let us never grow weary Mm. in doing good. Yes. Because in due season, we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. That's right. It's easy to give up doing good. You know, you've hit on, this has been a recent passion of mine. To be a true giver, you must first conquer that ego that says, why didn't he say thank you? Mm. Why didn't he cut me in when he went off? Because that's what stops you. And, And what you need to understand is if you ever feel that tug, you have to ask yourself, why are you doing this? Mm. Right? Because... Once you don't care, like yeah. like that's what I meant. I assume a person is operating under the best intentions. Yeah. By the way, dude, there's nothing that's improved the quality of my life more than assuming everyone, including people in traffic, are operating under the best intentions. I assume every person that I help is amplifying it by five times helping someone else by my example. Mm-hmm. And that has freed me yeah. from those ego constraints that limit giving to finding the right person to give to. I no longer care about that. In fact, I love to be taken advantage of. I take pleasure out of thinking someone has completely ripped me off. I fooled them, didn't I? Wow, that's hard for a lot of folks to hear. (laughs) And let me be candid here. This is something that in my own life, I probably would say, my wife would say, it's the area I've grown the most in in our 30 years together. Because I've always been a giver. Mm -hmm. I come from a very hospitable island where we're known for our, our generosity. Ireland is, for years, was the poorest nation that gave the most. Mm-hmm. My family was like that. My mother would figure out how to feed the kids, six of us, feed the dogs, and then feed the neighbors. And I don't know how she did it. She said, I did the loaves and fishes trick every weekend, you know. So I grew up with that. It was kind of my cultural identity, my personal identity. But I used to like, I needed to be seen. I would give and I would give and I enjoyed giving. People would classify me as a very generous person. But I like to be seen, mm-hmm. and I like to be acknowledged. And over time, as I've gotten more and more committed to the purpose and the process of giving, as I've grown as a person, I now have grown into the person that I don't need to be acknowledged, mm-hmm. and I don't need to be seen for it, and I don't really need to be thanked for it. And with that, I probably get 3,000 personal notes written a month to me yeah. of people thanking me. Yeah, And there was a time in my life where... I did an awful lot to be seen to be thanked. Yeah. And now I truly, you know, I'd rather the people, when I'm involved in charities and I'm involved in this and I'm involved in all these different things, I don't want my fingerprints anywhere that are visible. Right. And it's funny because now I'm not attached to it for my own ego. That's it. That's it. The attachment goes away, yeah. right? And there was someone, when I was growing up, I think a seminal moment for me was there was a guy coming through town to raise money for missions. I told you I grew up in a very, very conservative church thing. Mm-hmm. We used the guy coming up, feed the kids, do the missions. And they were $10,000 short of the goal. Mm. And someone in our church donated $10,000 with one rule, that he or she would never be acknowledged for. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that was the great mystery, right? And between you and I, it was Billy's best friend, Ethel Wilkinson. Mm. Ethel Wilkinson wanted the joy for the first time to let go of money. Mm. Because if there's an attachment with it, you're not letting go. You're investing in owning a situation and taking credit for a situation. Mm. So by giving all of her money, which her husband had just died and they'd, they'd come into this money, she gave all of it away, never got mentioned, because for the first time she felt like she was really letting go. And Isn't that deep? And that free. had a huge impact on wow. me. And I think that's why today I would rather be influential mm. than think worthy. Mm. Mm. I love that. So give knowledge first, share your network. Third. Show your compassion as a human being. Mm. People want to be loved. They want to be loved at work. They want somebody to shake their hand instead of wave. Mm-hmm. Give them a hug if it's appropriate. Listen to their feelings without judgment. Mm. 
and just really care about them as a human being. I mean, when I talk to managers, I say you need to love those who you rely on for your personal and professional success because they're tied together. And you may say today it's just business, but if I came back and you were on your deathbed, you will realize you are not your following, you are not your bank account, you are not the title on your business card. What are you? You're the sum total of every love story you ever created, and you spent most of your life at work. Mm -hmm. So at some point, I believe that when we show that compassion and that love and that vulnerability, Mm -hmm. something changes in the other person, Mm -hmm. right? Because you create the things you do by example. And so I learned that in a business organization, Culture is a conversation led by leaders and messaging and cadence and storytelling about how we do things here successfully. Mm. So if you want people in an organization to love the customer, guess what? You need to love the employees. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that. Could we have a principle around here? That says, catch somebody doing something right. I love that. Make a really big deal out of it. Talk behind their back. It's the best time to talk behind somebody's (laughs) back. It's when you've caught them doing something right. I love it. Acknowledge, empower, encourage. Now, we have a lot of things we do here. But, you know, the San Diego Union, our largest newspaper, did a survey of the top 100 companies in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And we came out as the best place to work in San Diego. Wow. Congratulations. What they do is Above Sharp Healthcare. That's a real accomplishment. They did an anonymous poll. They get these anonymous uh, reporting. They got 70% of our staff to Mm. respond and all this type of stuff. So here's the interesting thing. Today we're in a shortage of employment. There's a talent war right Mm -hmm. now with companies. Mm -hmm. Well, we were doing these kinds of things in the middle of the recession when there was a surplus of people. Mm -hmm. People were looking for work left, right, and center. The fact of the matter is we have no shortage of talent at Buffini Company and no shortage of when we have an open position, no shortage of the amount of talent mm-hmm. that we're able to choose from. And we have great recruiters. We have a fabulous HR department. We have great benefits. We've got great perks. We've got 401ks and matching funds and vacations and seminars. The work we do is very meaningful. There's great purpose to it. But at the end of the day, what speaks louder than all of that is there's people inside the company who tell their friends, you got to come work here. That's right. They, why do they do that? Because they have a name here. Hmm. They're a person. They're part of something. They're part of a family. They, they feel like that when they hurt, you hurt. Mm. And they feel like that you care about them deeply. And um, that's more important than the money. I really do think. Well, well, here's the thing. These guys then go serve our customers. We have right. hundreds of employees that serve thousands of customers. And our customers love our staff. That's right. And it's not all about Brian Buffini. Far from it. And so when they're being coached, when you know you talk about you know, you, we were reviewing some of our clients' stories and these massive yeah. changes of life and whatever else. Well, that was someone in our company that poured themselves into someone who was in a, a bad spot. I, I showed you a story of a gal who was $155,000 in debt with two adopted kids yeah. who's now one of the top agents in all of the United States making a million dollars a year whatever else. But it was a grinding process of someone who had to come alongside that person and love them through That's difficult right. times, paying off the IRS going through loneliness, going through all that tough stuff, and then building a prodigious business. Because love comes with accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first published Love is a Killer app, people worried that, what are you doing here? You're making a more permissive world. And I go, oh, no, no, no. I'm not talking about somebody that loves you like your college roommate. <laughs> I'm talking about somebody that loves you like your grandma. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a different game. Mm-hmm. When grandma gives you advice, you better listen and learn and demonstrate learning and lead others to learn. Or you're going to go pick a switch <laughs> in the backyard, right? It's a Richard Pryor routine, but it's true. Grandma holds you accountable because it's tough love, mm-hmm. right? So I, I am really a big proponent of that idea that we hold people accountable, that we help mm-hmm. for them to learn, not to give back. Mm-hmm. In mentorship, which I study a lot these days, the teacher's greatest enthusiasm is when the student learns. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's the knowing, not the winning, that mm-hmm. they are doing. Because when you're trying to help the student win, now you're getting into being vicarious, living mm-hmm. through them. It's just about them learning. But you sometimes, like in your story here, that your coach holds her accountable. Mm-hmm. When she falls down, he doesn't just say, it's okay. He says, get back on that horse and try not to do it again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part of love, too, as well. Talk to this. Let's say I have someone listening today. I have two questions because so many people who will be listening today, are they're aspiring. Mm-hmm. So we might have someone who's working in a job. And you kind of bypass the fact that you got 11 promotions in two years. 
and we speak in terms of love and so on and so forth. Now, maybe somebody wants the outcome, and that might be the problem, right? But let's say someone is aspirational. They want to succeed. They want to do better in their job. What best advice would you give to somebody? You know, you rose up through the ranks. You were seen and acknowledged for who you were. What encouragement would you have for someone who's trying to move along in their job? You need to build a reputation, Mm. a brand. A brand is a promise of an experience and an outcome, right? Mm. You need to build a reputation that you're a force multiplier. Mm. Like when you go out and you talk to customers, they become more successful. Mm. That's a big reputation to build in a market, in any services industry. But for me at Yahoo, and I get this question all the time, how'd you get all the promotions? Why did they make you CSO after that short period of time? Well, at some point, the senior leadership looked around and found out more people were following what I said than what they said, and they just kind of had to give it to me, one begrudging promotion at a time. (laughs) And it wasn't because I was trying to take over the place like Hogan's Heroes. I'm really dating myself here. (laughs) I wasn't trying to take over the place. I was just... Brian, I was just so excited to be at Yahoo at the turn of the century and the dawn of the internet. I just wanted to help the programmer next to me and the sales guy across from me. And so I was educating and mentoring them and nothing creates loyalty like that. Mm -hmm. So at some point, you know, we show up at, I remember this like 2001, right before the last and biggest promotion, we show up at a sales conference and I'm speaking and everybody, everybody is there sitting in the front row, show up early, taking notes. And then the $50,000 speaker they brought in from the outside and one of our senior leaders spoke afterwards to a fraction of that crowd. And that's where Greg Coleman looks and says, we've really got to put this guy in the right position because he's obviously a leader because people are following him. And it wasn't because of charisma or whatever it's because they trusted me because they all knew and they could all tell stories about where I tried to help them so what I hear yeah is you had passion I did and you served I did and you served other people and in helping other people get where they needed to be one of the natural consequences of the world is that you reap what you sow is that you ended up getting to a place you didn't even want to be. You didn't even know you could even get there. It wasn't on your goal sheet. It was like my hobby. Yeah. It's like some people like collect stamps. Yeah. I collect stories about people that I had a brief encounter with and they went on and did something great. I don't really share those stories, but I read them. I read my fan mail. You got to yeah. be your own sunshine. You know, you got to, yeah. it's important to do. But what I figured out, and it did not make the pages of Love is a Killer app, so consider this brand new material. Mm. I discovered it recently. I found an old notebook from 2000 of my notes. Mm. And it was a note I wrote before we moved to Morgan Hill, California. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a little note to myself and I said, always feed the favor economy. Mm. And I realized that our life at work is the favor economy. That's why I never ate with the sales guys from the day I got to Yahoo. Every day at lunch, I'd set my little tray down next to a new group I didn't know, Mm -hmm. ask them about what they were working on, and found some way to worm my way into one of their projects as a helper. I mean, I'd be like whiteboard guy at Mm -hmm. one meeting. I'd help another guy with his PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. I'd go through a guy's spreadsheet when he was turning in budgets, but I realized that if you feed the favor economy enough... Mm -hmm you will be a person of influence at mm. some point. So that's something that has occurred to me over the years. So and when I read that, I realized that was it. In analyzing your responses there, I see a guy of passion who served, but who also was deep inside his gifts. You were doing what you were supposed to do. It felt like a hobby. Right. And that's a big thing for folks. Now, again, there's a lot of younger folks who are trying to figure out life right now, and they're looking for this great big bang I'm going to get this experience in three months. I just think you find your gifts by you find what you don't like by doing some other things. But at each step along the way, you still need to show up. Yeah. And I'm telling you, folks, success is not a destination. You'll never get there. I've Mm -hmm. worked with three billionaires. They're all still thinking about the next big thing. Success is a direction. Mm -hmm. The direction's Mm -hmm. forward. So to those that are listening and say, I want to be successful, my prescription to you is simple and complex. Read a book every month that helps somebody and talk about it instead of gossip, sports, or politics. Mm. Connect three people a week that should meet and find a new reason to love a new person in your business life every single day. I promise you, if you just do those three things and you invest your time, you're going to show up someday and you're going to realize what a success story you've become. Well, I I was about to ask you if someone was starting a business what they should do, but you just answered that, (laughs) (laughs) right? And that's great. That's fabulous advice. I could go on all day. I am having a heck of a time here today. Hey, me too, man. And uh, I'm excited that 
thousands of people are getting to listen in. We do a little thing at the end of each podcast, okay. which is kind of a fun thing. Okay. And I'm sure people would love to hear more. You know what? We can always have you back. I, I'd we, love it, man. We have lots to talk about. But let's do this. This is our first one together. Okay. First of many, I hope. But here's the five questions we ask. So first, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? So it's going to go back to Billy King. Okay. Can't, can't help it for this one. Yeah. She said, when you're going sideways in life, ask yourself, what are you not doing today that you were doing back in the day when you were on top? Mm. Most mm. important question. Wow. Right? And, and a lot of us have huge chunks of our life where we're going sideways, not forward. Mm. So, so what were you doing when you were on top? It's really important. That you're not doing today. Right. Fabulous. Right? And that, that turned my life around twice. God bless Billy King. She lives on right? today, right, through your words and through your life, right? I went, I don't mean to make light of it, mm-hmm. but we went to her funeral a few years ago. The pastor did not know who I was, and so I shook his hand at the church, and I said, you know, Billy King was a wonderful woman, and I looked at him, and he said, yes, she was commercialized in a book a few years ago. And I go, no, 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 she was memorialized in a book a few years ago, please. I'm just kidding. Nice. actually really happy. <laughs> commercialized. Yeah. commercialized. You know what? She'd been happy you sold a few of those books, right? Yeah. My mother always says, more look to you, Brian. More look to you. Okay. We know you are musically inclined. We know you have those gifts. But what one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Hmm. That's a really good one. I would like to have mechanical skills. Hmm. My wife is still looking for a proper husband. <laughs> Right? We have all this stuff. When somebody knocks on our door that's working on anything, I have to go get my wife. I make Sheldon Cooper from the Big Bang Theory look like an, you know, a mechanic. Um, so I, I definitely could do better with physical objects. <laughs> so you're not getting the power tools for Christmas and no. Father's Day? Okay. Dude, I can't, I can't put together a paper airplane. That's there. great. But you have a network that can, and that's yes. all that counts. Great. What uh, book has been most instrumental in your life? I got to say, um, because of when I read it and what it meant to me at the time, I've got to have to say it's The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. Mm. Wow. Why was that so influential? Because it, it was the final piece of the puzzle for me. Compassion is your desire that others do not suffer unnecessarily. The enlightened sense of compassion is your dream that others will find happiness and joy mm-hmm. while they're still alive. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Do no harm. Create some joy. And when I read that book, it gave me a clarity. Now, you know, if Billy were alive, she would be quite upset that a book by a Buddhist outlawed <laughs> Dr. Norman Vincent Peale's book that was sitting in our library. But there was the thing he said at the end of the book, and this was where, and I quote this at the end of Love is a Killer App. It's mm. the end of that book. And I say, to quote the Dalai Lama, mm-hmm. if you live your life right, do good, mm. then at the end of your life, you can look back on it and enjoy it a second time. Mm. And mm. I read that book right when I was reading Love is the Killer App. It was a gift given to me by another person because mm. when you share knowledge, people give you knowledge. Right. And I have to say that probably changed everything for me. I had a doctor give me that book years ago. Yeah. I was get, working on my health and they said, here's the first thing I want you to read. And I'm like, okay. And uh, so some great stuff. You know what? It is, as long as the doctor's talking to you about your health instead of the weather, then you're going to live. Yeah, right. But if they start talking to you about the weather, <laughs> dude, you're going to die. You know what I mean? Getting a bad <laughs> prognosis here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Favorite song. You're in the car. It's the Tim Sanders jam. I mean, is it still reggae? I mean, what is it that's... Uh... So it changes a lot because yeah. like, different songs inspire me. If you'd have asked me last year, I'd say it's the song Seasons by Future Islands because it just inspired me. Mm-hmm. Right now, I turn up uh, a song called DNA by Kendrick Lamar. I, turn, oh, yeah. I lower my windows and I turn <laughs> up the sound and I scare everybody in the gym parking lot. But I like the idea that royalty and legacy is in my DNA. So it changes. But if you were to ask me like what's in your life mm-hmm. if there was like one song during the whole course mm-hmm. thank you for being a friend mm. okay so that one you know i know that's kind of a stretch from kendrick lamar but yeah so that's a big one for me and yeah. um you know very cool thank you well i i do thank you for being my friend i appreciate that last question you're scrolling through the channels which i know you don't do a ton of 
but uh, there's a movie on that you've watched a bunch, and you have to stop and take a peek at it. What's the one movie you watch over and over and over again? Oh, or- Pulp Fiction. Really? Yeah, you know, that's why I got the job Chief Solutions Officer at Yahoo is because there was this <laughs> character in the movie called The Wolf. Yeah. Right? That was my job description when I was made Chief Solutions Officer. Uh, I was the wolf. I fixed things that were broken. I love that movie. Tarantino, the dialogue in that movie. I know it's violent. I know it's profane. All the... Dude, Pulp Fiction is the movie I can't ever get tired of, mm. no matter how many times I watch it. It's just super engaging. If not that, The Ten Commandments is the other one. Sure. I know it's weird to wow. say, like, want to buffer those, but it, you are, you know. Very similar with your musical choice. Hey, you got quite an arc here, I'm bro. I'm technically crazy. My grandmother had me tested. <laughs> so you are called the wolf, and I've heard the phrase a wolf in sheep's clothing, but I would say you are a lamb who loves like a lamb who was asked to do the job of a there wolf. There you go. That's and, and you know good. what the secret was? When I would show up on the ground and we'd lose our biggest account or we'd get kicked out of France for items that were you know, bad on our auction site, I learned a very important idea is when you show up in a crisis, everybody on the team wants to figure out whose fault it is. I'm like, it doesn't matter. What do we have to bear? Start with what we've got. And we'd mm-hmm. open the flip chart and say, what have I got to work with? Because you're flipping the script from scarcity to abundance. Mm-hmm. And that was my little, people ask me my little takeaway from all those years mm-hmm. in solutions. It's help people start with what they got and don't mm-hmm. worry about blame. Wow. Magical. Magical. And, uh, you know, Love is the Killer app is a book you wrote 15 years ago. And you've written many other great books. And you've done many other fabulous talks, a number for our events. And look forward to many more in the future. But I, I want to share this. You're a blessing. You're a blessing to a lot of people. And I believe you're just about to get into your own stride. When many people think, oh, yeah, that ran its course and that's this. I believe the market's in more dire need of your message, not less. I believe your level of mastery of your subject matter is just, it hasn't even come close to reaching its peak yet. And I think you're a master of it. And so well, thank we're, you. we're drowning in information, we're starving for wisdom, yeah. and we're all looking for love. That's right, man. And uh, I've loved being with you today. This has been a great time together. Thank you. And, yeah, uh, I've had a great time too, man. Good. Hopefully, uh, we'll do it again, right? All right, buddy. Fist great. bump. Yep. Well, let me uh, leave you guys today. Again, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I hope you loved it. I hope you love your friends enough to share the podcast with others. Remember, we do this podcast. We don't run ads. We don't sell stuff. We don't do this. All we do is we're trying to be a great force and influence in the marketplace to improve your life. We hope that you'll share this with someone who has a need. So as I finish here today, I leave you with a little Irish blessing that my loving grandfather always said. May the roads rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, the originator of the killer app called Love, called God, I hope he holds you in the hollow of his hand. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.